There are so many research benefits to having good fat in your diet, but there's just one little problem. If you can't properly digest the fat, you won't feel good, and a lot of people lack the key nutrients needed to digest fat. One of the best digestive aids I've come across comes from my friends over at BioOptimizers, and it's called Capex. First, it breaks down the fats you eat, using a proprietary lipase and denylene extract blend. This means you're breaking the fat into usable energy and not storing it. Second, they transport those fatty acids into the muscles and liver, where they increase fatty acid oxidation inside the mitochondria. If you take a few capsules of Capex in the morning, it's gonna drastically increase your energy and fat burning for the rest of the day. It feels like a cup of coffee and lasts for 6 to 10 hours with no nervous system stimulation. And again, no matter what diet you're on, Capex enhances fat oxidation and digestion. You can also raise metabolic rate and boost other fat loss hormones. If you want to try Capex, then head over to kenergize.com forward slash seam. You'll automatically get 10% off any package of Capex with a coupon code seam10. That's kenergize.com forward slash seam. Yes, it does appear, without a doubt, um, being in ketosis is, um, you could, we could call it a state of, a degree of glucose sparing. Yeah. And, and the precise mechanism of that is, is unknown, but it does, it is clear regardless of the reasons or even regardless of the mechanism the body is in a state where it is not burning glucose as as quickly as it was before not that it can't it hasn't lost the capacity to but it just it, it isn't and so if it suddenly gets loaded with glucose um, well then it makes sense that um, it's going to take a little longer to clear it because it's it's not been burning it do you want to know what it is body mind empowerment get stronger faster smarter quicker friendlier more helpful more driven everything the body needs control your mind welcome to the body mind empowerment podcast i'm your host seamland and our guest today is dr ben bickman dr bickman has a phd in physiology and developmental biology he's known for his research about insulin ketosis and glucagon ben welcome to the show Thank you, Seem. I am delighted to talk about all things metabolism. <laughs> yeah, me too. And uh, you're actually like a very requested guest uh, for the podcast. And uh, I've been watching your content online for quite a while. So it's uh, like about time that we got to talk. Oh, well, I, I'm delighted. I'm honored. It, it's my pleasure, really. Yeah, me too. And um, so, yeah, before we get into that, uh, can you give like a brief uh, backstory as well of um, how did you get into the kind of keto world and uh, what, what have you been up to? Yeah, yes. My my adventures, <clears throat> my, my journey into the keto world has been uh, somewhat accidental uh, because of my focus on insulin. When I was a PhD student, I was increasingly curious about the connection between fat cells and, and diabetes, or in a bigger way, the connection between obesity and diabetes. And as I was looking into this more and more, it, uh, the evidence kept taking me to insulin. And we were doing studies in lab animals where we were feeding them the exact same amount of food. And yet when some animals had higher levels of insulin because of what we were doing uh, in the animals, we were inducing uh, a state of hyperinsulinemia or elevated insulin. They were, their fat cells, they were getting fatter now the the whole mass of the animal wasn't getting bigger, but mm -hmm. the fat was getting bigger. So I was seeing more and more yeah. of this very fat friendly effect of all of this insulin. So 
uh, that was the beginning of my um, now to this day ongoing interest in insulin <clears throat> and the more I was appreciating how insulin was relevant in diseases the more I appreciated wanting or rather the more I wanted to know what lowered insulin the fastest and the best in the humans because uh, elevated insulin is driving all kinds of diseases uh, and we can get into that um, in a bit but uh, it's also absolutely connected to insulin resistance mm -hmm. insulin resistance is high insulin those two things go together and and the more I uh, looked into the best ways to lower insulin the more I appreciated the benefit of a low carb or a ketogenic diet and until that time this is just you know six six years ago six or seven years ago mm -hmm. until then I didn't really have an opinion on a ketogenic diet or if someone had mentioned uh, a very low carb high fat diet to me I would have probably said what most people do which is oh that's not going to be healthy although I wouldn't know the reasons why it's just what everybody says but the more I decided that I was not going to rely on anyone else. I was just going to look at the studies myself. Um, the more convinced I became that if someone <clears throat> has a metabolic um, disorder, they're overweight, they have hypertension, they have diabetes, or they're on their way to diabetes, then the more the person should consider a low carbohydrate diet because when it comes to insulin control it's the best and so mm -hmm. that that's what got me into ketones because if insulin is low then the body is burning fat at such a high rate that the liver starts making ketones from it so it is ketogenic so I, I kind of became interested in ketones almost by accident but it was certainly a, a result of my ongoing focus on insulin so I always mm -hmm. am quick to say I'm an insulin guy first and then I'm a ketone guy sort of second you know just by accident yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a pretty uh, kind of controversial topic, especially in terms of like the fat consumption and yes. uh, like the sugar and carbs. So ins insulin itself is like very controversial as well, uh, especially uh, between people who are doing like a keto diet and uh, people who are doing like the opposite where they are consuming a high carb diet. So yeah, it's yeah, like that's right. And, and, and not only high carb, but every two or three hours, you know, <laughs> yeah. th that's, that's the standard diet uh, in most places where yeah. they're, they're told that they need to eat six little meals per day and they need to be higher carbohydrate. That is, that is a terrible way to eat, but it's a wonderful way to make sure that insulin is elevated almost all the time, which is yeah. not good. Yeah, and uh, that's that causes this uh, hyperinsulinemia where yeah, like yes. insulin is frequently elevated. And uh, as I understand, then if uh, you keep your insulin high all the time, then eventually your body will become insulin resistant because of like this feedback loop so that you're producing yeah. so much insulin all the time and the body kind of shuts down or kind of goes deaf in, in, yes. in response. Yes, that's right. And we know that that, that right there, though, seem is, is debated, but that insulin is driving insulin resistance. And yet there is absolutely conclusive evidence that that happens in muscle cells and fat cells. So we have definitive evidence uh, in human fat cells and human muscle cells that the high insulin or the hyperinsulinemia is driving insulin resistance. So it, it's un it shouldn't be a matter of debate. Mm -hmm. It happens. The debate should be 
well, what else is also driving the insulin resistance? And that's, that's a valid concern. Uh, no one is claiming that the high insulin alone is enough to drive all of the insulin resistance you see in someone. There are undoubtedly, there are other variables, but it is an important one that should not be overlooked. If for no other reason, then it's, it's, a, it's something that someone can change so quickly. Mm-hmm. If someone has high insulin levels and that's driving their insulin resistance, well, that's good news because they can start to lower their insulin levels within a day of just changing their diet. Yeah, yeah, and kind of, kind of allowing the body to start healing itself. So, uh, yes. eventually, you you will become insulin sensitive, which is the kind of healthy state where yep. uh, you don't have like this uh, elevation of insulin all the time, and you don't have like a high blood sugar as well. So, yeah, like the insulin sensitivity is the kind of the go-to or the goal, if, if that makes sense. Oh yes, I completely agree. The more, the more I have learned, as especially in, as an educator, as a professor, um, the more I have learned in, in teaching my students about the origins of disease, because that is the class that I teach at my university. I teach the the, the future doctors and nurses, and it became. I was amazed. I was constantly amazed at how many diseases are either directly caused by insulin resistance or the insulin resistance is making the disease worse. It's accelerating the progression of the disease. I couldn't believe it. Uh, it was just popping up everywhere in, in, in the literature, in the published reports. And so I, I really wanted to make sure my students knew that because when these future nurses and doctors are working with a patient, I want them to look at the patient and, and think, all right, I could have you leave my office with a prescription for a medication or a drug, but maybe let's try lifestyle change first because uh, this insulin resistance could be a cause of what's happening here. And even I want them to even measure the insulin resistance. I want them to even wonder whether it's relevant because most um, medicine won't. They won't Mm -hmm. think about insulin resistance at all. Yeah, I wanted to, you mentioned that insulin resistance is linked to many diseases, uh, which I think is true, but uh, which one is more, what, which one plays a bigger role? Is it like the high hyperglycemia, like the high blood sugar and the kind of overconsumption of calories, or is it the insulin itself independently of the other factors so that you can... Uh, you, mean, you mean as a cause of the insulin resistance? Yeah, and the disease thing. Yeah, 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 that's, that is a good question and I can't tell you. I can't say, I would, um, there is evidence to show that a person eating a low carbohydrate diet when insulin is low, their metabolic rate is about 300 calories a day higher. Hmm. And that's a pretty big shift mm-hmm. in, in, in metabolic rate. You know, that's, that's comparable to being on a stair stepper and climbing 160 flights of stairs about, hmm. you know, which so, so very unpleasant amount of exercise to, to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think there's danger in teasing those apart. But if I, if I had to pick one, um, I, would, I would say I would rather overindulge on fat and, and go above my calories because I know that my metabolic rate will be higher if I'm keeping insulin low and I will be excreting ketones, which is also energy that doesn't have to be stored or burned based on exercise or metabolic rate. I'm just excreting it in my breath or in my urine. And so there's a bit of a, a bit of an overspill that the body allows um, or, or a wasting of energy when the body's in ketosis. Um, but, but seem the question that that's a good one. Is it insulin? That's the main driver. Is it um, too much calorie? 
I don't know. Um, I would say it's, it's, it's really a combination, very likely. Yeah. Yeah. I think like it's probably there's a, the, you know, the standard Western diet is uh, very high in carbs. It's also high in fats and yes. it's in high in eating frequency. So you're spiking the insulin very much yes. throughout the entire day. So it's like the worst combo. And I think that that's where the insulin resistance sets in. And that's where also you get metabolic syndrome and uh, that sort of thing. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. And, and and I would say with the insulin resistance, um, I, in fact, I've just been working on a talk that I'll be giving at Low Carb Denver, so a meeting here in the U.S. in a couple of weeks. And, and my talk is about how the body transitions from insulin resistance to actual type 2 diabetes. And, and so I sort of present this progression of different tissues in the body that sort of fall mm-hmm. or, or they, they start to suffer. And the evidence generally suggests, I believe, that it starts with the fat cells. Mm-hmm. So when the fat cells become insulin resistant, they're the, then that's the first tissue to fall so to speak. And then it's the sort of dominoes where the, you know, n- not in necessarily exact order, but then the muscle will start to become very insulin resistant, the liver, and then even the pancreas itself and, and, and it, it producing glucagon, it starts to produce more glucagon than it should because it's not getting the signal from insulin to tell it to stop. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I would say regardless of whether it's just the hyperinsulinemia or the overcalories, and I would say it's really a combination of the two, so we, it's not fair to tease them apart too much, I would say regardless of the actual origin, uh, it, it, is, it is very likely a matter of the individual fat cells being, being over full or bigger than they have the capacity to store it with energy. Yeah, yeah, and uh, as I understand, there's like every person has their own uh, unique threshold, or oh, their per- yes. personal personal fat threshold. Uh, after which, if they exceed that threshold, then the body will get into resistance and get sick. But yes, if you yes. stay below the limit, then you're you're actually gonna you, you can actually get really fat, but not get yep. developed into resistance if your threshold is really high. Yes, that's exactly right. It, it is a fascinating situation. Yes. So first of all, you you absolutely bring up some very accurate points. Um, that, that, as you said, is referred to as the personal fat threshold. And it is important to look at that as at the level of the fat cell because that's where it's happening. Mm-hmm. And that, that is a genetic component. We know certain ethnicities um, have, a more, have a greater inclination towards, towards fatter, bigger fat cells rather than multiplying smaller fat cells, which is a healthier way to get fat. Um, but even then, within an, of course, even within an ethnicity, you can have variability there, of course. Uh, but diet does appear to play a role there. Um, we know that some of the metabolites from industrial seed oils will will prevent a fat cell from multiplying. It will force it to grow bigger and fatter, which is makes it sicker. We know that omega-3 fats will help the fat cell divide and so prevent it from getting fatter and sicker. Um, insulin itself can, um, in humans, we know this, insulin will will push the growth of a fat cell by up to three times. So even once again, the insulin itself uh, becomes relevant. And we know that from people that are insulin treated, where at the site of the insulin injection, the fat cells are significantly well fatter than elsewhere. So, So even then, there's numerous variables coming into play. But yeah, back to the point, uh, it, it does seem that the fat cell is the first to fall. And once the fat cell becomes insulin resistant, it starts to spread that sickness throughout the body. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but uh, what do you think about 
this uh, physiological insulin resistance uh, that happens oh. uh, when you're in ketosis oh, yeah. and you're water fasting and uh, that sort of thing. Yeah, so I don't like to use that term. Now, it might just be sort of semantics or it might be the educator or professor in me, but insulin resistance is when the body is not responding to insulin. And that is not what is happening in the person who's in ketosis. Um, so we have to uh, appreciate um, the difference between insulin resistance and glucose intolerance or reduced mm -hmm. glucose tolerance. So importantly, I would contend any, any instance of insulin resistance, whether it is pathological or physiological, is still high insulin. You, mm -hmm. you don't... You, cannot if the insulin is not elevated the body will not be insulin resistant if the insulin is low the body well cannot be insulin resistant it will be insulin sensitive and uh even in physiological insulin resistance so we truly and accurately use the term physiological insulin resistance to refer to a point when the body is actually insulin resistant but it's on purpose mm -hmm. it's not an accident or it's not a result of disease that is typically during pregnancy the mother's body will become insulin resistant probably to promote fat growth on mom and to promote growth of the baby because the higher insulin will help the baby grow mm -hmm. um, and certainly help the baby get fat um, and that's probably why mom's becoming progressively insulin resistant throughout the pregnancy baby really puts all of its fat on its body on the on the last you know like 8 to 12 weeks and that's when mom is the most insulin resistant. And then the other point time in life is during puberty, which is, again, another time of pretty explosive growth in that little boy and girl. And, and presumably that high insulin helps just facilitate the growth. So, um, but regardless, so whether it's physiological insulin resistant during those times of human growth or whether it is pathological insulin resistance, like the person who's eating too much junk too often, both of those have high insulin. Now, in contrast, the individual who's in ketosis, they have low insulin. And if you were to give them an injection of insulin, they're going to respond to that insulin um, very, very well. Um, but if you give them, you know, 50 grams of glucose, their body will not clear that glucose as quickly as the person who is eating carbohydrates more frequently. Mm -hmm. And so that just reflects this overall competition between energy sources and how the person who's in ketosis is not accustomed to burning glucose mm -hmm. and so they are somewhat glucose intolerant anyway it might seem like i'm sort of um yeah. no, no splitting like hairs here but that's the way i look at it that that is yeah. not an instance of insulin resistance it is an instance of of glucose intolerance yeah. uh, because the, they've basically pushed their body um to be relying on fat and they just need a little time to go back to burning carbs yeah, I totally agree. And uh, yeah, it's, it's quite unfortunate that it's categorized into the same camp as insulin resistance in general. Yes. But yeah, it's, yes. it's, it's actually just glucose intolerance uh, because the, like the muscle cells, they don't need to use glucose because they're burning fats and ketones yep. while they're yep. in ketosis. That, that, yep. And, 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 and seem the defense of this perspective is a paper that was just published this week. Um, uh, Professor Tim Noakes was one of the co-authors on this paper, but they took athletes that were keto adapted or fat adapted. And they found that they were just as insulin sensitive as the other athletes. And, and again, these are not just normal people. These are mm -hmm. um, very, very well-trained athletes. 
but they were glucose intolerant. When they gave them um, a glucose load, it did take longer for their body to clear that glucose. And so that right there to me is proof positive that calling it insulin resistance isn't accurate because they were as insulin sensitive as the other group, but they were just not clearing the glucose as well. Yeah, and like part of the reason has to do with uh, the, the, the body prioritizes the glucose for the brain. So uh, once the you know, body goes into ketosis, then the muscle cells by default will, they don't need the glucose and they become insulin resistant as to allow any, any, any form of glucose that would come next that would be just shuttled into the brain and the muscle cells wouldn't steal it, if that makes sense. So it's, yeah, it's, yeah it, it does. It, it, uh, yes, it, it does appear, without a doubt, um, being in ketosis is, um, you could, we could call it a state of, a degree of glucose sparing. Yeah. And, and the precise mechanism of that is, is unknown, but it does, it is clear regardless of the reasons or even regardless of the mechanism, the body is in a state where it is not burning glucose as, as quickly as it was before. Mm-hmm. Not that it can't, it hasn't lost the capacity to, but it just, it, it isn't. And so if it suddenly gets loaded with glucose, um, well, then it makes sense that um, it's going to take a little longer to clear it because right. it's, it's not been burning it. Would it, wouldn't, would it be like an argument uh, for doing some form of a cyclical keto diet so as to kind of introduce the carbs every once in a while so that the body would still maintain this uh, kind of sensitivity to the carbs as well as the general metabolic flexibility? Yeah, you know what? It, it, it probably does. Uh, however, so I do think that perspective may, may indeed warrant this idea of, of cycling in carbohydrates. Um, I am reluctant to embrace that idea wholeheartedly just because if we were talking about someone who's trying to reverse their type 2 diabetes, then I would say there's no good reason to do that. This is someone who genetically has a very hard time burning glucose and clearing it um, from their body, or I shouldn't say that, Um, but, but it is, the disease is an accumulation of glucose. And so this is a person who does not metabolize glucose perhaps as well. So it's best just to right. avoid it as much as, as much as really possible. But for the other, for the average person, so I, I imagine maybe me or you, we are, we're healthy, we're lean guys, we're pretty active. I'm, I suspect a fair amount older than you, but even still, I would say in, in, in this case where you and I aren't doing it because we're fighting diabetes and even obesity, we're doing it because we want to stay healthy. Yeah. Then perhaps we're, we're justified in, in, right sort of deliberately sort of dosing in that glucose into our diet from time to time. Um, mm-hmm. But for the person who's overweight, diabetic, hypertensive, et cetera, no, I, I think yeah. in, in those instances, there's probably very little good reason to do it. Now, let me say also that if we were to take the healthy person and go one step further and say the healthy person who's extremely active, very high level of training, someone like my, my friend, Zach Bitter, who is mm-hmm. an ultra endurance runner, he is very smart and, and very deliberate with using carbohydrates where I hate to put words in his mouth and speak for him, but if I recall correctly, he doesn't eat a lot of carbohydrate, but when he trains, he will train with carbohydrate um, to use that just to make sure his body, when he does give the carbohydrate during an event, his body knows just what to do with it, which is burn it like rocket fuel um, when, you know, when needed. And yeah. so in, in a very highly trained athlete or the individual who's training a lot, I should say, 
um, there's probably um, there's probably some justification for them to do it as well in those instances. Yeah, I totally agree. And uh, yeah, like, it depends on the particular individual and uh, what's their metabolic status and how healthy they are. So yeah, like the average person may may not want to do it uh, as as to not get uh, you know as to not uh, keep them keep their body sick. But uh, for the athlete, especially, they can use it like cleverly for uh, just the performance and uh, that sort of thing. Yes. Um, but uh, you mentioned uh, glucagon briefly. So uh, mm-hmm. what's that and how does it relate to insulin? Yeah, yeah. So uh, glucagon is, is sort of a companion hormone to insulin and uh, even neighbor. So they both come out of the pancreas. Now, I've mentioned it in the context of a progression towards type 2 diabetes. Part of that, because the difference between insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes is the glucose. What they have in common is that they both have high insulin, and that is a very important similarity. And one of the reasons why I focus on insulin so much, if conventional medicine looked at type 2 diabetes as a progression of insulin levels rather than just glucose, well, then we can detect the problem far, far sooner because over the years, the insulin level has been climbing, 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 but it's enough to keep the glucose levels normal. And then eventually, the body becomes so resistant to its own insulin that even though there's a lot of insulin, the glucose levels start to climb and then they detect the disease. So, which is unfortunate again, because it's, it's something that if we looked at the insulin, we could have detected much, much sooner, but, but that's somewhat beside the point, I guess I'm getting distracted, but (laughs) as once type two diabetes really starts to happen in the sense that the glucose levels start to climb, part of that, appears to happen because the glucagon producing cells of the pancreas become resistant to insulin. So, so very briefly, normally insulin will tell the alpha stop releasing glucagon. But if those alpha cells become insulin resistant, then they don't get that signal. And, when the, and, and then in an instance when they should, produce, be, should be producing less glucagon, um, they are not. They are continuing to produce the glucagon. And, and glucagon's main action is directly antagonistic to insulin. Namely, while insulin is trying to lower blood glucose, glucagon is trying to increase blood glucose. And of course, mm-hmm. that's the worst thing that we want happening in the type 2 diabetic. We're trying to push the glucose levels back down, but we're fighting against glucagon. So that's sort of an introduction to what glucagon does. The reason glucagon is relevant is is um, in a way independent, we're not independent, but it's in addition to what it does with regards to um, glucose production. Glucagon is um, a hormone that has been implicated in both stimulating lipolysis, so the, the burning, the breakdown of fat at fat tissue, and also stimulating the production of ketones at the liver. And that's relevant because <clears throat> people, I believe people look at dietary protein in the wrong way, uh, namely that people fear the pro- the insulin spike that can come from protein. Um, now it is more modest than the insulin spike that we get from carbohydrate, but even still, it is it is a sizable insulin um, release from protein. But importantly, the pancreas also releases glucagon almost at an I shouldn't say equal level, but because they're not at the same actual concentrations, but to an equal degree that if insulin release is going up 10 times, for example, 
the glucagon release is going up 10 times. And, that is, and we see that in both protein and fat, or so dietary protein and dietary fat, where there, um, if insulin is, in insulin, there are some instances of high fat consumption in humans resulting in a small but statistically significant, but it is very slight, um, increase in insulin, and it's matched by glucagon. Now, that does not happen with carbohydrate. With carbohydrate, you have a big bump. Uh, with dietary carbohydrate, you have a big bump of insulin, and you have an inhibition or a reduction in glucagon. And so the insulin to glucagon ratio goes really high with carbohydrate consumption, and it actually stays quite normal with protein and fat consumption, um, especially fat, where it is equal in the realm of actual fasting. So there's very little... I mean, that is part of the power of dietary fat. And I, I say that it sort of mimics a fasting state. And by that, I mean it helps the insulin to glucagon ratio stay in a range that is very similar to that that we see when we see someone just fasting completely. Yeah. Yeah, the, uh, the insulin glucagon ratio is almost like a, uh, like, like a reflection of the overall uh, the energy status of the body so with high yes. in, with high insulin your body is in this fed state and yep. uh, energy abundance and with uh, high glucagon it's more of this yeah like the fasted state and uh, energy breakdown so with a higher glucagon you're mobilizing more fat and uh, it's in my opinion like it can also reflect some some degree of uh, autophagy so uh, if you're yes into, if i was going to mention know. that myself yes that's exactly right yep even outside the realm of just nutrient metabolism insulin controls autophagy to a massive degree as well where, where it is very uh, strong inhibitor of autophagy so you're exactly right i'm thrilled you mentioned it if even if we look outside of just fuel use and, and look at something like autophagy once again um, a low insulin to glucagon ratio is going to favor autophagy, and we see that in fasting or ketosis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and uh, th that's also like one of the misconceptions about, let's say, the longevity benefits of ketosis due to their higher uh, protein content. Uh, like people think that it's going to, you know, um, raise mTOR and those sort of things and suppress autophagy, and therefore you're going to accelerate aging. But yeah, like people forget to mention, like you said, that the insulin is also suppresses autophagy and insulin also raises mTOR. So yeah, it's a, yes. it's a double double edged sword. So you have to kind of be, if you're if you're keeping your carbs low, then it's it doesn't actually have like a negative side effect in terms of the mTOR and uh, and and autophagy. Yes, I completely agree. You're really bringing up some incredibly relevant topics, and I'm thrilled you are. Yeah, it's one of the things that puzzles me so much about fasting and and trying to trying to leverage the benefits, the benefits of fasting in, in the context of longevity, it is so puzzling to me that people would implicate protein as the macronutrient to avoid <laughs> when, when we know that that goes directly against the best human evidence, which is to say it's not that great anyway, but the epidemiological evidence or long-term sort of observational evidence that the older the person is, I think the cutoff was like 65 years old, the more protein they ate, the less, the lower the mortality. Mm. And that goes directly against this idea that you should be cutting protein. That it's, yeah. it's bonkers to me. It makes no sense <laughs> yeah. that if, if you look at mTOR and, and, and truly appreciate its regulation, yes, certainly amino acids will stimulate mTOR. But even if you take the most anabolic, which is leucine, this is a study done in muscle cells 
if you take the most anabolic amino acid, which is leucine, and compare it against insulin and see which one activates mTOR more, there's no comparison. At no point does leucine have a stronger mTOR activation. And whereas the mTOR activation of leucine is essentially gone within just a couple hours, the insulin activation stays elevated for up to 24 hours. Wow. And, and so when you look at this in the context of, of human nutrition, we don't have people that are walking around eating beef every two hours <laughs> yeah. and getting those amino acids from the beef or eating eggs, you know, beef and eggs being wonderful sources of, of, of protein and amino acids. No, they're eating starchy, sugary carbohydrates every two hours. So it's this constant spike of insulin that we should be afraid of or, or that we should appreciate. It's not the infrequent um, little boluses or loads of amino acids that come from when someone's eating a high-quality protein source. No, it, yeah. it's, it's very puzzling to me. If, if we're pointing the finger at mTOR, all the more reason to appreciate what insulin is doing. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. And, you know, when you look at the importance of protein, then, yeah, you, see, you already mentioned it as well, that uh, higher protein diets improve uh, longevity because of your body is able to maintain more muscle mass. And yes. uh, you're going to just have like, higher bone strength and, uh, yeah, just general uh, functionality. So if you're, you know, and protein itself is like one of the most essential nutrients that you need. You don't need carbs and you can, you can probably go for a long time without fat uh, but uh, you don't really, you can't really survive for too long if you don't eat any protein. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, to me, that's another part of my views on diet and why I do appreciate a generally lower carbohydrate diet. It's because there's nothing essential about carbohydrates in the diet of humans. Not to say that there can't be some good things. I'm not saying that, but but there are such things as essential fats. There are such things as essential amino acids or, or proteins. So why not focus on the two that are essential? And then the fact that they also have the least effect on insulin, well, from my perspective as an insulin scientist, that's, that makes it all the better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it is like a, a really good uh, way to mimic the fastest physiology while still being able to you know, promote muscle, muscle growth as well as uh, just general uh, the, the, the metabolic rate as well. So, you know, fasting can be beneficial for longevity, but if you overdo it and if you're constantly fasting all the time, then that, that can actually have like the negative side effects. You're going to reach a point of dim diminishing returns. And that's where yes. like, the, the magic of carb restriction is also like so uh, beneficial and effective. You're keeping your body in this semi-fast semi state, semi-autophagy state, while still being able to stimulate sufficient amounts of mTOR and uh, maintain muscle and just general vitality. Yeah, yep, yep. I, that, that's right. I couldn't <laughs> have said it better myself. Yeah, uh, but uh, you mentioned uh, that protein does spike a little bit of insulin, and but it's much uh, less than than carbs. Uh, but what about the phenomenon of uh, gluconeogenesis, where you convert the protein into uh, into carbs? Yeah, yeah. So that is something that happens anytime we're fasting or we're in ketosis, um, where this this process of gluconeogenesis, I, I should clarify. So, like you say, that's the liver's ability to to make glucose, but most of that does not come from muscle protein or amino acids. Most of it comes from lactate. I can't remember the exact amount, but it's, it's something like 70% of all of gluconeogenesis comes from lactate. And so it's very rarely using amino acids or in, in lower levels to actually make that happen. Um, and then in the case, yeah, but it, it's important to appreciate that because I do believe that's somewhat at the heart of 
the altered insulin to glucagon ratios that we see uh, in with the different macronutrients. If someone is eating carbohydrates, they have no need of gluconeogenesis. There's no need to tell the liver to make glucose because they're eating all they need. And so they can, so then having a big insulin spike is okay because insulin will inhibit gluconeogenesis. It does not want the liver to be releasing glucose. It's trying to lower glucose. And one of the ways it will do that at the liver is stimulate the liver to turn the glucose into glycogen to store for later use. In contrast, if a person is, um, has low levels of, of carbohydrate in their diet, they need gluconeogenesis to happen. And so if they eat that protein um, and to a lesser degree the fat, the little bit of insulin spike, one of the reasons perhaps it is lower is, is because they cannot afford to inhibit that um, gluconeogenesis. They need that to happen and they need the liver to be releasing glucose. And, and indeed, glucagon is facilitating that to a great degree. So there's going to be a strong glucagon release and glucagon is essentially telling the liver, hey, the body needs some glucose. You have it stored. It's time to give it up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that, that describes the the saying that uh, gluconeogenesis is, is driven by demand, not supply. Yes. So yes. it doesn't matter how much protein are you eating, uh, the body will self, self-regulate the amount of uh, glucose it creates from the protein. Yes, that's exactly right. And again, uh, just to remind, it's very little is coming from the protein anyway. Most of it's from lactate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, fat itself can also be converted to glucose. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, um, um, it, it's if we look at it from the level of the carbons, it's sort of a net zero effect. But if we look at it from the level of the triglyceride and the glycerol coming from the triglyceride, um, which 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 is how we consume it in the diet, we consume it as triglycerides. Then that glycerol itself is is certainly um, building blocks for glucose. Mm-hmm. So how how do the ketones uh, fit into this then uh, in in terms of uh, the insulin and uh, glucagon? Yeah, so ketones. Well, there's a lot to go. We could talk about with that. Mm-hmm. Um, I- insulin is the con- is the main controller of ketone production. I mentioned that earlier, and ketones themselves, because they provide a fuel for the brain, they are the other fuel for the brain to use in addition to glucose. Then then the ketones are what many will refer to as muscle sparing. Now, I I should clarify, because sometimes people misunderstand that and they use that term um, erroneously. So what I'm not saying is that that is not a reason why someone on a ketogenic diet is going to have bigger muscle gains than someone who's not. That's not accurate. And and I don't believe there's evidence to support that. Not that I'm opposed to it. Um, And not that I don't believe it can happen. Let me just clarify for a second. I think someone can experience um, perfectly fine and in, in, in comparable muscle gains while in ketosis. And I know I've experienced that myself, even being in my mid-40s over the last few years. I've found that with different training routines, I've been able to um, gain muscle mass while almost constantly being in ketosis. But that's not what is meant by saying ketones are muscle sparing. Because the brain has a certain metabolic demand, which is high um, for, for the size of the organ, um, it, it can use glucose or ketones. And the fact that the ketones can fuel the brain means that the brain does not need as much glucose. Because if the brain needed 
all of its energy only from glucose, then it would perhaps overrun the liver's ability to make new glucose mm -hmm. or, or the available even from the lactate, for example. And so it would have to tell the muscle, hey, it's time to break down those proteins as amino acids because I need the liver to make more glucose because I'm the brain and I demand this much energy all the time. But the brain can start to shift and use the ketones. And so the ketones are a way of the body saying, hey, we have plenty of fat to burn. Let's go through all this fat first. And then once we go through all the fat, if we run out of fat and the brain still needs all this energy, then, well, then there's nothing else to do but start cutting it from the muscle and uh, from, from amino acids and making glute through gluconeogenesis. But the ketones prevent that from happening. So in that sense, ketones are muscle sparing when someone is fasting or otherwise in ketosis. So mm -hmm. that's, a, that's an important point of clarification. In the average individual who's high carb fed, they don't care that the ketones are muscle sparing. They don't need the ketones to be muscle sparing because they have so much glucose to feed the brain with all the glucose. Yeah. It only becomes relevant if we're depriving dietary glucose in the diet, or, or I shouldn't say depriving, uh, if we're limiting um, yeah. dietary carbohydrate. And so the liver has to make a lot of glucose to feed the body. Some of that is certainly feeding the brain. The ketones just simply lower the demand of, for glucose from the brain. They give the brain this alternative fuel, and thus the body does not cut down, break down muscle. Yeah, yeah, it's really fascinating, and uh, especially like the signaling uh, proper properties of the ketones. So yeah, like when your body yes. detects the elevation of ketones, then it's uh, it receives the signal that it's basically like in this fasted state, uh, and uh, therefore, therefore, it's also going to be burning more of its own body fat, and uh, you know. That would also entail that, yeah, you would you would uh, you would you would have to preserve some of your uh, muscle tissue because you don't need uh, the glucose. You can just use your body fat, so to say. Like you you you, you can literally like just imagine yourself tapping into this infinite source of energy because your body fat has like a, thousands and thousands of calories. And it's, oh yes, uh, it's quite paradoxical. It's hundreds, hundreds of thousands. Yeah, yeah. And the great tragedy in that situation, seem is that most people they don't really appreciate all that energy they're storing. They just look at their fat as something to curse and to hate. And yet isn't, it is an essential part of, of, of human evolution. We are the only land-based mammals that, can, that really are, are not only born obese, because uh, we have fat little babies and no other um, land-based animals do, land-based mammals do. Mm -hmm. and, and we also have a much, much greater capacity for fat storage. And, and, and so it's important. And, and that's, Partly, that's probably uh, partly due to our energy demands at the brain. But this fat tissue is an enormous energy reservoir. And so the person cannot start tapping this until their insulin has come down. So I, I sometimes use the comparison or an analogy that the human body is like a big fuel tanker. It's a big fuel truck. Mm -hmm. And there is the one little fuel tank underneath the, the truck itself underneath the cabin near the engine. That's one small little fuel tank. And then it's hauling in this big trailer, this massive tank of fuel. <laughs> now that fuel truck, as it's driving down the road and it needs to stop and fill up, it's always filling up and only using that little amount of fuel from that small tank at mm -hmm. the front of the truck. And it's never actually using the big fuel that it's carrying around. But imagine how much longer that truck could drive 
if its engine could burn the fuel that it's hauling around in the big tank at the back. That's like the human body where we have about 2,000 calories stored as glucose in the body. And, and then we have, even in a lean person, we have 100 times that, two or 300,000 calories stored as fat on the body. But if a person is living a life of constantly elevated insulin, they're constantly in sugar burning mode. And so they're only ever relying on the fuel in that small little tank under their truck. And it's only when insulin comes down can they finally shift the fuel and now let the engine burn that fat that they're just carrying around all the time. So people here in Utah, up in these beautiful mountains, people are always going on hikes and I hear people saying, oh, I need my, I need my energy bars or I need my energy drink. And I just look at the person who's overweight and I think, no, you don't. Your body is covered with energy bars. Yeah. You have energy bars all over your body. All you really need is some water and maybe some salt and then let your body use its own energy. Yeah. Yeah, it's like never, never teaching your body to uh, use its own body fat. You're always yes. kind of filling up the small little gas tank and yes. without, without realizing that you are actually the massive fuel tank, like you said. It's, a, it's a, like a perfect analogy. Yeah, yeah, it really is unfortunate. That is what the fat is there. It is energy just waiting to be used. That's why we stored it in the first place, to use it later. So let's use it. Mm -hmm. And uh, in, terms of, uh, in terms of that, uh, you know, um, going on a, like a keto diet is, is, is great for fixing the insulin resistance. And uh, a lot of people also lose weight with it. Uh, so uh, what, do you think, what do you think about the, the idea of the calories in versus calories out? So uh, like the, some people yeah. in the keto community may think that uh, you can eat as many calories as you can as long as, as, long as you're in ketosis. But yeah. uh, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think that perspective is not, I don't think, entirely accurate. Um, we, we do have to account for energy, there's no doubt. Um, but it is also incorrect to not acknowledge that um, the different macronutrients will affect how the body uses energy. And, and I, sort of, I, I alluded to that earlier, where if someone is in ketosis, <clears throat> we know they have a significantly higher metabolic rate. That has been detected through multiple different tests, um, through multiple different labs. So we know metabolic rate is higher from anywhere from 100 to 300 calories. And, and that is a lot mm -hmm. of yeah. energy. And then also, as I said, a person in ketosis is going to be excreting ketones in their breath and in their urine. And, and a ketone is, an, is a calorie. I mean, I mean it, it, it's a caloric nutrient. It, it is energy that the body either stores or would burn. You know, it, it, it has about the same calories as a carbohydrate does about four calories per gram. And so this is an energy source that still the body would have to, you know, account for with regards mm -hmm. to the thermodynamics. But in this case, it sort of introduces a new or, or a different outlet where it's, it, it's neither being stored nor burned. It is just being eliminated from the body. It's kind of given back to the, to the universe and to the energy at large in, in a sense. Um, so, I would say someone who's in ketosis does not have to be as worried about calories because they have so much more wiggle room potentially. But if they are eating more fat than they're burning, um, then, then it just that dietary fat will go to the front of the line, so to speak, and, and it will just reduce the amount of fat that they're using from their own body. It's kind of like there is a, a, a cue 
you know, a lineup mm -hmm. of, of these nutrients waiting to be burned. And the, when they're eating fat, um, it just takes it longer. So that fat that they're eating generally is going to board the, to the, get on this, this metabolic bus, so to speak. And, and the, the stored fat just has to wait longer. It, it's right. pushed back in line. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree. Like you can't really fully escape thermodynamics <laughs> as, yeah. as, as much as you like, but you know, certain macronutrients change or influence that uh, thermodynamics. Like if you're eating higher protein, then you're actually losing more calories for the digestion of that protein yes. and, and such. So yeah, like it's not like that black, black and white, but at the end of the day, the energy balance still matters. So just people may feel subjectively different or they may feel that they're not restricting calories uh, by just, you know, the increased satiety from the keto diet as well as the just uh, suppression of insulin. They're, they're keeping their body in this very, you know, they feel that, it's, that the diet is very easy and sustainable and that's why they subconsciously just maybe start to eat a little bit less calories. Yeah, I agree. In, in my experience, yeah, you really, you really touched on some relevant stuff there. I, I think it's important to note that the person may think they're eating more than they really are because they are more satisfied, even though the actual calories being consumed um, is, is very possibly going down. They just don't feel like they're being deprived. So they're, they're very unintentionally calorie restricting. Mm -hmm. Or even if they're eating the same amount of calories as before, as I said, there are these other metabolic exits for the energy. And so the body has a better way of dealing with the energy. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, but uh, at the same time, I don't want to throw insulin under the bus either. So like, <laughs> so although I think that the hyperinsulinemia is bad, I think that uh, some, uh, some strategic manipulation of the insulin can also be helpful for the weight loss as well as just uh, muscle growth and such. So insulin also promotes muscle growth. And uh, that's why like bodybuilders also emphasize the idea of eating a bunch of carbs and maybe like they also inject some insulin. So insulin has its anabolic properties. And the problem is that the general population isn't that insulin sensitive and they're already getting too many carbs and uh, too many, uh, you know, too many spikes of insulin. So yeah, like it's not, it's not necessarily that insulin itself is bad. It's just the kind of yes. context, context of the situation. Yeah, 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 right. That's right. It's such an important um, uh, point of explanation. As much as I even point the finger at insulin as, as a molecule, as a sort of villain, I never ever mean for us to, to actually look at it as a villain. It's right. just a problem. Um, in our diet where it's so constantly elevated, uh, but to, but it's there for a reason. The body is designed to have this hormone and, 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 and so we need it. It is absolutely essential. So it plays an essential role in every cell in the body. Every cell has insulin receptors and in every cell, insulin is at least helping the body, helping the cell know what to do with the energy that it has. And usually that is telling the cell to, um, take the energy that's available and to store it, to build up, to build molecules, to make new, new types of fats, to make new proteins, to uh, strengthen the, the cell wall with a lot of these supporting fats like cholesterol and, and phospholipids. Insulin helps all of that happen. So totally necessary. Mm -hmm. It's just not necessary, necessary at the levels that we see in most people nowadays. Yeah. And uh, also like in the, in the, in the Western diet, the they're also eating uh, the fats together with the high carbs, so that's yeah. gonna that's gonna em emphasize the storage of fat and uh, make it easier. So that's 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 I, I think that's kind of the bigger problem or the root cause of the problem that the 
that the fats and carbs together create this insulin resistance and uh, also like promote overeating in general, like the hyperphagia. Yes. Oh, without a doubt. That, that mix of fat and, and carbohydrate is, I will say, I say it's a divine mix, but I don't mean that in a good way. It's divine yeah. as in it just lights up every pleasure center in the brain and, and the body will seek it um, to a very great degree. Uh, I know for me, the most, the hardest um, indulgences to avoid or to change that and say it another way, the most tempting foods are the foods that are high in fat and carbohydrates. So yeah, pastries or ice cream, those are the things that are the most tempting to me. Yeah, it's so totally. And that's like the signature of the junk food, <laughs> the, yes. the the sugar and carbs and uh, the over calories. So yeah, you, you, you can even like you know, I, I, I'm definitely th that you've heard about like the potato diets or something like those that where you're only eating potatoes and you're losing weight because it's kind of boring and uh, yeah, it's not like that high in calories. That's right. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and moreover, if it's pure potato, yeah, that is not a high calorie. There's going to be a lot of of roughage or fiber in there um, that you're getting, uh, and so you're going to feel kind of full, and it's just. And so you're just naturally going to be um, lower calorie. Uh, but man, what a miserable diet. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you would also become probably protein deficient if you're only eating Oh, potato. I totally agree. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You could not keep that up over time. Yeah. But it, but, but it would, would uh, explain like why people who are doing like a low fat, high carb diet, why they are still actually very metabolically healthy and insulin sensitive so that their body is very efficient at at shuttling those carbs into the cell, uh, thanks to thanks to but like kind of entraining the body to use insulin in a way. Yeah, well, and, and importantly, there are there is a very neat study that looked at the response to low carb or low fat diets in people, and, and the response varied a lot if the person was insulin resistant or insulin sensitive. In the insulin sensitive people. They had a very similar. They had, not only did they have low levels of insulin, um, but they uh, they responded favorably to both the low carb or the low fat diets. Hmm. You know, on those extreme ends of the of the of diet, they they both in both instances they had weight loss. They were both perfectly healthy by all accounts. But if you looked at the insulin resistant people, so those that had insulin levels that were higher at the beginning, they had very little response to the low fat, high carb diet. Right. And they, their, their weight loss was like six times higher when they were on the low carb, high fat mm. diet. Nice. And that makes sense. If, if, yeah. if a person is insulin resistant, um, they're not going, they're going to have a much stronger response, a much higher, um, longer insulin response to the carbohydrate than a person who's very insulin sensitive. They can eat that carbohydrate and the insulin levels come up and down very quickly and they can get back to fat burning um, uh, mode quite quickly. But in the hyperinsulinemic, insulin resistant person, it will take them hours and hours to get that insulin back down. Yeah. And, and, so, and we see this. So, so yeah, if someone is metabolically healthy and metabolically flexible, then they could thrive on either diet um, very mm. likely. But if someone is insulin resistant, as I think the evidence suggests most people in the United States are these days. So this is a far more common situation. It's far more common that someone's insulin resistant um, than they are insulin sensitive. Even if it hasn't been diagnosed in the clinic, um, 
but in that case, that's a person who's going to be better on a lower carb diet based on this one study I have in mind. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's a great study, and and you know when you look at like athletes or small children, that they can get away with anything basically yes. because they're yes, very, very 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 insulin sensitive, and yeah, that's like, exactly kind of, right. Yep, they can, and so it's it's just so important to to put that in context, and we've mentioned the relevance of context already um, a couple times in our talk, um, but it is so important that my focus as a scientist is not in these metabolic. Um, sort of heroes, the people that are really active or just naturally, they're genetically more insulin sensitive due to for any number of reasons. That's not who I am interested in. I'm interested in the other people that are more and more, the more common um, these days where a study was published a few months ago, maybe it's a year ago at this point, where they found that 88% of all adults in the U.S., are considered metabolically unfit. So they have one of the five aspects of, they fail one of the five aspects, at least one of the metabolic syndrome. And all of those things, all of those parts of the metabolic syndrome are connected to insulin resistance in some way, shape, in some way. So it's the, the, the kind of situation that I study, which is the metabolically less fit that's the more common and those are the people that should be more careful with carbohydrates yeah yeah that's 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 a really fascinating uh, finding uh but what about uh, your own diet then <laughs> you yeah you're eating like a keto diet or what kind of what kind of foods do you eat yeah i do i do adhere to a a, a, a pretty low carb diet um that's just because not necessarily just to stay lean although i enjoy that i i want to stay lean especially you know, it, it's, I sort of joke, um, but when I was dating my wife uh, 20 years ago, I knew I was going to go bald. I could already tell I was going to lose all my hair. And so I told my wife, hey, hey, sweetheart, I'm going to go bald, but I'm always going to have a six pack. And so, and so I, it's sort of part of my, my marriage contract um, to, to keep my wife interested. Uh, but uh, so I do enjoy being lean, but I also, I am very afraid of cancer and Alzheimer's disease. Those are diseases that I have had in family members, um, grandparents, and, and those diseases scare me. And I know that even with some types of cancer, not all, but some, and very commonly with Alzheimer's disease, there is a strong connection to insulin resistance and insulin. And so independent of me wanting to keep lean, I'm very, um, I respect the role of insulin in these chronic diseases. Mm -hmm. And so I generally do, that's my long-winded way of saying, yeah, I do adhere to a low carbohydrate diet. I favor that personally in my life. And for my families, and for me, that means I eat a lot of meat, eggs, and vegetables. Mm -hmm. That's generally the way it looks. Yeah. For my family, it means that I want my children to eat a lot of meat and vegetable, uh, meat and eggs. Mm -hmm. That I want them to get those fatty, heavy protein foods to help their brains be healthy and to help their bodies grow in a way that in, in a way that I believe to be very healthy. Now that's not to say, and so they eat. They still will eat. They will eat more carbohydrate than I do. Mm -hmm. So they will eat. They will eat bread and sandwiches, and I don't do that. They will eat more um, sugary fruits like, like apples. I just try to encourage always that there be an addition of 
of some fat or something that is actually essential mm-hmm. in, in the diet as well. Uh, but for me personally, it's quite low carb. Um, and, and again, I focus on nutritious protein sources, meat and eggs, and then, um, you know, certain fruits and vegetables. Yeah, like that's another one of the benefits of the keto diet, especially if you're doing it like with some uh, animal protein and eggs and those things. It's it's, it's very nutrient dense, and you basically yeah. you're basically getting all the nutrients that you need uh, without needing to like overconsume calories or without needing to, you know, uh, take a bunch of supplements. Yes, that's exactly right. Yes, well said. That that there's no there's no sort of nutrient gap where the person has to keep eating, keep eating in order for the body to get what it needs. Um, there's very little dilution in the diet and and part of that one of the big benefits is that when someone goes on to a lower carbohydrate diet just by 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 necessity they eat more real food because you can't really be on a low carbohydrate diet and you're eating processed fake foods it it won't work because almost always those processed foods are higher carbohydrate foods so you have to avoid them and and that's what i believe is an important common ground, whether someone is a ketogenic diet with high animal product or whether they are even vegetarian, if, if both diets are lower in processed foods, if they're sort of whole food vegetarian, that is a wonderful common ground that I think can be very healthy and why someone can go on a vegetarian diet, which I do not consider optimal for humans. But even still, someone could do that. And if they're smart about it and make sure they get all the essential nutrients, which gets progressively harder the more the human eliminates animal foods. But even still, if, if, if they're avoiding processed foods, and that's generally going to be a better diet than, than the standard American diet, that's for sure. Yeah, that's that's right. Um, so um, you're also writing your uh, book. And what, what's the title and what's it about? Yeah, yeah. Thanks for bringing that up. Um, the The title of the book is "Why We Get Sick," and that's a bit of an ambitious title, I know. Um, but I did want it to be a little catchy, um, simply because I feel so strongly about it, and I think the evidence um, is so clear. The book is essentially a book about insulin resistance, and it is and it's sort of split up into different sections. What is insulin resistance? So defining the actual disease and in why we don't, how we miss it so often in conventional medicine. So what is insulin resistance? And then the next part of it is, is very big, which is why it matters. Mm-hmm. And, and then I go through all of the diseases that, that uh, in one, to one degree or another are coming from insulin resistance. And that is you know, certain cancers, are connected to insulin resistance in a very strong way. Fatty liver disease, which is the most common liver problem. Erectile dysfunction in men is a very early sign of insulin resistance or infertility in women with a disease called polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS. Hypertension, if someone has high blood pressure, it is almost always a result of insulin resistance. Uh, Alzheimer's disease, anyway, more and more and more. So that's, and the reason I take so much I'm so thorough about that is because I want the person reading that book to, to close the book and to wonder whether their health is being affected by insulin resistance. And, and if so, then rather than trying to address each health problem as an individual problem, 
than just rather go right to the root problem and address the insulin resistance. So by that I mean if someone is overweight and, and this man is overweight, he has erectile dysfunction, he has hypertension, and he has fatty liver disease. Normally, the person would look at all of these as totally different unrelated problems. And yet every one of those is in some way connected to insulin resistance. So rather than taking three different medications, maybe the, the doctor or the person would say, I am going to try to do something else before I start taking all these medications, which is I'm going to change my lifestyle to start improving my insulin sensitivity and then see what that and see, see what happens. And, and indeed that's the kind of the last part of the book. Um, after what is insulin resistance? Why does it matter? Then it's what to do about it. And it's talking, looking at the evidence with regards to different strategies that can be used to improve insulin sensitivity. But the, the power there is that rather than, like I said, rather than looking at each of these problems as distinct, it is acknowledging that each of them can be a branch coming off of one common tree or one common root, and that is insulin resistance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's, that's, really, that's really, yeah, like a true in a way that all of those things kind of umbrella from the insulin resistance and just yeah. like the metabolic syndrome and uh, obesity and uh, those things. Yes, that's right. Yeah, and, and, and so and, and I'm not trying to claim every disease, but I do people, you know, I think I have up to 700 references that I'm using in that book. Mm -hmm. uh, people will be shocked um, reading it and seeing just how many problems are coming from insulin resistance. And again, it's not like insulin resistance is uncommon. It is probably, um, based on the limited evidence we have to confirm, it is, it is likely the most common health disorder in the world um, that is non-infectious. So if we look at non-infectious diseases or disorders, insulin resistance is very likely number one with regards to how common it is. Mm -hmm. yeah. So how, do you, how would you like go about diagnosing it or finding, finding yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. So that's a great question. Um, uh, and I go into this in, in a great deal of detail in the book, but it you really have to just get the person's insulin measured. And, and that's a point of frustration for me. Very often someone will go into the clinic and, and the, the, medicine, the practitioner, the nurse or the doctor will just measure their glucose levels. But as I said earlier, that's not enough. That does not tell you what insulin is. And in most people, it's very likely that the glucose is normal, but the insulin is not normal. The insulin is higher than normal. And so, in order to know whether the person is insulin resistant, you really need to measure insulin. That has to be part of the checkup. Even a fasting insulin level, it's not perfect, but it's still going to be very um, illustrative. It's going to be very helpful to get an idea of where the person is. And then the best test, which is not easy, is to have the patient come to the clinic and drink some glucose, and then you measure their blood frequently and then look at the insulin curve. But again, that is not easy to do. Yeah. And so it's not common. And I would say someone doesn't have to do that. If they can just get their insulin measured, they can look at the insulin level alone, or they can look at uh, the level of the insulin and the glucose, something called the HOMA index, H-O-M-A. And that's just a formula that looks at fasting glucose and fasting insulin as an indicator of insulin resistance. Mm-hmm. 
And and even then, you you would have to maybe take it with a grain of salt that, for instance, if you are coming into the glucose tolerance test, test uh, with like uh, from a keto diet or wider fasting, oh, then, yeah. then, you, then you may become like you may look like you're insulin resistant. But if you like wait a little bit longer uh, to kind of break the barrier, so to say, and then do it to test again, then you're probably actually very insulin sensitive. Yeah, that's right. That's an excellent point. That if someone is going in to get a glucose tolerance test and they've been ketogenic for a while then yeah, they usually, I don't remember, someone someone somewhere, I, I kind of laid out a plan here, but it's basically like for the two days before you go in, you want to bump your carbs back up to like 100 grams per day or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, yeah that's, that's, that makes sense in the sense. Uh, so yeah, like when, where, where, can, where can people get the book and uh, when does it come out? Yeah, the book comes out in July and it is available for pre-order now. Now, and then Seem, let me just make one last comment here. Um, I've also, I have just made, uh, I've, I've been working with some people, in fact, two of my brothers, I have a very big family, so that <laughs> I, I am one of, I have seven brothers, oh, wow. so, and five sisters, actually, isn't that crazy? <laughs> um, uh, it was certainly crazy when I was a child, but two of my brothers and I, um, we have made a, a shake, I, just to make it easier for people, so in the next few weeks, this will be a made uh, and available online for direct sale. We're really, really trying to keep the price down, but there's it is a great protein blend of of egg whites and whey and collagen. It's a great fat blend with uh, olive oil, coconut, uh, and a little. Uh, anyway, it's it, there's some and it's it's very good. A little apple cider vinegar too, um, to stimulate mitochondrial uh, biogenesis, but. Uh, someone in the next few weeks or in about a month that'll be the well, I guess depending on when this episode is released but uh, people can get it at the website get health and, and health is it's just the word get G-E-T and then H-L-T-H mm. uh, sort of an abbreviated form of the word health get health mm. H-L-T-H dot okay. com um, but again the book is available uh, for pre-order now and then the shake will be available for sale in about a month Awesome. We're going to put all the links in the show notes. And yeah, it's, it's been really awesome talking with you. We can definitely do a, like a follow-up on uh, different topics. But yeah, like it's been, it's been great talking with you. Well, I've, I've really appreciated it, Seem. I think we've touched on some great topics. Uh, you asked some great questions, and I hope that all the listeners have been able to learn some things. All right, that's good. And before I ask my last question, uh, where can people learn about uh, you on all social media? Yeah, yeah, thanks. Uh, so my involvement on social media is generally just to to promote um, an awareness of metabolism and the latest published research. So it's not just pictures of me, um, and it's not pictures of my food or my family. Uh, it's just science, uh, and and that's on on Instagram and Twitter. My uh, the handle is at Ben Bickman PhD, and Bickman is just B I K M A N Ben Bickman PhD, and then I have a a public Facebook page, which is Dr. Bickman. All right, that's good. And uh, my last question is, uh, what's this one piece of advice or a habit you wish you adopted sooner? Oh, what a great question. Um, You know what? This is not diet related at all. The one habit I wish I would have adopted sooner is calisthenics. (laughs) Isn't that funny? Or gymnastics. I have, the older I've gotten, the less I enjoy just lifting weights and the more I enjoy lifting my own body in different yeah. ways. Yeah. And so I've had to be much more flexible, work on flexibility and, and static strength. So holding a position and that has 
really, I think, helped my body develop muscle in, in places and in ways that I never really had to develop when I was just lifting weights. So the one thing I wish I would have learned sooner, it is to move my body in ways I didn't move it before. Yeah, like I also love doing calisthenics and it's really uh, like a functional form of exercise. And yes. uh, it's also like uh, essential for, uh, you know, the muscle maintenance and longevity. So that's awesome stuff. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I, it's so much more enjoyable than I thought it was. And I thought when I started it a few years ago, when I turned 40, I thought I would lose muscle, and I have not at all. If anything, I think I'm I'm a little bigger and much more well-defined. Well, that's good to hear, and uh, kind of goes to show of the, uh, of the nutrient quality as well as the training. Yeah, that's right. All right, well, it's been great talking with you, and I uh, hope to see you sometimes in the future. Yes, thank you so much, Seem. Have a wonderful day. I appreciate the time. Thank you. Alright, that's it for this episode of the Body, Mind and Power podcast. If you want to support us, then I would greatly appreciate it if you could leave us a review on iTunes and the other social media platforms. You can now order my new book, Metabolic Autophagy, that covers a lot of the same topics that we talked in here. It's a collection of certain lifestyle habits and practices that prioritize longevity as well as performance. To support this podcast, you can also become a Patreon and get exclusive video lectures from my biohacking bootcamp that covers circadian rhythms, intermittent fasting, autophagy, resistance training, biofeedback, and many more. But other than that, my name is Seem. Stay tuned for the next episode. Stay empowered.